You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guest on this episode is Eva Liu, a writer and publisher and founder of Madeline Editions, a multilingual children's book publisher that offers books in English, French, and Mandarin Chinese. Welcome to the podcast, Eva. Thank you. I previously had on uh, Dr. Karen Tsai, who spearheaded the children's book Monster Dance, which your publishing company published. And I'm wondering, how did you end up getting involved with this project? Um, so Monster Dance was our newest release, and um, it was it was really a title that was born out of the pandemic, and it sort of cut in line of what we were doing because it was you know this whole situation was unexpected. Um, when Dr. Karen Tsai um, and Guy Gilchrist, who's the, uh, the illustrator behind you know some of the most beloved cartoons we grew up with, like the Muppets and Tom and Jerry. When they first called me about this idea, I was in lockdown week number five wow. in France with mm -hmm. my family. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was sort of at the very beginning, the very first lockdown, which was a very strict one. Mm. Um, and, and for my daughter and her friends and for my nieces and nephews in the States and in many places around the world, life was turned upside down, literally overnight, you know, suddenly there was no school, no play dates, no going out, you know, and restaurants and stores closed, field trips were canceled, cities became ghost towns. Um, and we had to bunker down as if, as if we were in war and kids were told they couldn't see their grandparents, teachers and friends. And as you can imagine, this was a drastic lifestyle change um, yeah. that left many kids confused. I don't know how it was for your family, but um, for the youngest ones, especially, mm -hmm. um, they couldn't, they, they couldn't understand why. And at that time, Madeline Editions, my publishing house, we had just donated about 12,000 books to families in confinement around the world. Mm. Um, but we wanted to do more. And this call from Dr. Karen Tsai and Guy brought us and everyone an opportunity to confront the monster um, COVID head on <laughs> with concrete, timely results, you know, an inspiring book in the laps of children, masks on the faces of healthcare heroes, because a portion of the proceeds from the book goes towards Dr. Karen Tsai's um, nonprofit, DonatePP.org. Um, and that, that's, that's how it started. Yeah, it sounds like it couldn't have come at a better time into someone who understood the effects anymore. Um, Dr. Tsai also mentioned in her interview how instrumental you were in getting the book out in a timely fashion, which is probably normally quite a challenge, never mind being in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I've heard that it sometimes takes a book up to a year to get published. Um, how hard was it to get the book out, and how long did it end up taking to get the book out, like published, which in this case is printed or digital version. Okay, so to give you a sense how, of how crazy we were, <laughs> <laughs> um, in publishing normally, and this, this is, you know, in an ideal situation from conception to the books actually com coming out, it's a minimum two-year process. Wow. Um, and that's an ideal situation. Many times it takes longer. Mm. Um, in our case, 
um, we from that first call to when um, the books were released, it was I want to say six months. Wow. Um, and I think that was one of the reasons why Guy and Dr. Karen um, came to Man Auditions because we do things a little unconventionally. Hmm. Um, first of all, we're we're independent publishing house. That means we're smaller and also more flexible mm-hmm. in that we we're not as structured as some of the bigger. Publishing mm-hmm. house, so this project mm-hmm. was able to cut in line. Mm-hmm. And um, secondly, we specialized in multimedia books, and and most of our titles are available digitally as multisensory, multilingual uh, books on Apple Books and Google Play, mm-hmm. and as apps. And digital means that we could go a lot faster. Um, in this case, because so many um, heavyweights um, in the end came on board, um, we decided to also do a limited edition print edition. And that we also managed um, to put out within, within six months. Wow. And um, this, yeah, so this was thanks to platforms that are available to us nowadays that are not that was not the norm in traditional publishing, namely, you know, crowdfunding, Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's how we did it. And and Monster Dance is now available on as an app and as a hardcover edition. Wow. And uh, yeah, so you ran a crowdfunding campaign for this book. I mean, uh, I know that crowdfunding campaigns are a lot of work. Um, Why did you end up running a crowdfunding campaign? What was the reason for doing it? Um, well, it was the urgency of the situation. Um, and also we wanted to make sure that we do, um, have enough interest to see this through and crowdfunding is always a practical way to test, um, interest. Um, and it was very grassroots. We were all of us involved. Um, we're really just calling up people. Like we, I mean, we have the fan base of, people who are already familiar with mad editions, but we had to go beyond that. So we were really, it was just really reaching out to our immediate circles and kind of the rippling effect from there. Um, And I think our mission resonated with a lot of families. Mm -hmm. And I think it was on one hand, it was something a lot of parents wanted to have for their young children. And on the other hand, it was sort of um, an empowering tool for a lot of people who felt helpless during the situation to be able to do something concrete um, and make a difference. Um, So we reached our um, funding goals, I think, within two weeks um, of the Kickstarter. That's incredible. Thanks Mm -hmm. to the support we received there, we were able to actually have a bigger print print run than we initially planned. That's wonderful. So in essence, the crowdfunding campaign was kind of a way for you to secure some pre-orders? Yes, correct. And what was your goal? Like how many books were you thinking you would try to see if you could get people to commit to ordering? So there were there were two parts to the Kickstarter. One was, you know, what we're specializing, which is um, the multimedia digital books. Um, mm-hmm. And that, you know, the sort of creative production cost of that, you know, involving sound engineers and animators. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at what we do, but it's that we, we make lightly a- animated books in English 
French and Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I did have a chance to look a little bit at the monster dance. Yeah, so that one part was to fund the creative production costs of the mm-hmm. digital, mm-hmm. and the other was to fund the the actual printing costs um, and warehousing and distribution of the hardcover books. Mm-hmm. And um, we started off pretty modest. We were thinking, you know, as long as we could get 500 hardcover mm-hmm. books plus, you know, the digital um base that we could already count on then we were we were happy to go with that but we we were in the end we were actually able to fund about um 3000 limited wow. edition hardcover books in addition to the digital downloads and how many digital downloads were you aiming for i don't know if we had a goal with that because um with digital the it's kind of it's kind of one time um production cost. Um, okay, so it's mostly to what, cover the production costs. Right, because okay. once it it's the same cost, I mean, unlike the printed versions, yes. it's the same cost whether it, it's one download or one mm-hmm. million downloads. Mm-hmm. So um, that was an issue there. So tell me about Madeline Editions. Um, how and um, why did you establish it? So I've always been a writer, but mostly for adults. And I started Mad Editions when I became a mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I started inventing stories for my daughter, like a lot of parents, um, bedtime stories, or just keeping her entertained to steer her away from tantrums or to distract her when the line is too long, you know, mm-hmm. that, that became kind of, that was um, the bulk of my parenting, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> to uh, make up stories um, whenever needed. And mm-hmm. um, so it, it kind of snowballed from there. I started talking with a lot of like-minded parents, namely, you know, writers and musicians and illustrators who um, who all previously most mostly work who, who made projects for adults, but um, mm-hmm. as new parents, we were noticing um, that the mar- that there were that it was hard to find um, quality m- multilingual and multisensory tales um, mm-hmm. for our children. There, it was. I mean, there's a lot of things out there, but there's so much noise um, mm-hmm. and so much junk to sift through. Um, so it was, it was in the beginning, it was really just, we wanted to make something beautiful for our children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it started with one book, um, The Taste of a Strawberry, mm-hmm. um, which is a story about strawberry ice cream in Tuscany. Um, <laughs> and um, it snowballed from there. And we got, you know, so many amazing contributors that we just had to keep going because it was, mm-hmm. it was, it would, it would have been too bad not to, um, for example, um, the classical music label Dolce Gramophone came on board. And then um, we had some amazing street artists from Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, and, and then we had, you know, award-winning writers from New York, from, you know, it was it was really cross-continental. Like we, mm-hmm. we had contributors from all over the world. And yeah. that was kind of, it went along with the theme of what we we're trying to do, you know. That first, the, just the multilingual part, expo- exposing children to new languages in a fun and stress-free way. And then 
there's also the multicultural part, which is, you know, taking them on a trip around the world. So each of our story is, is based on a different location. And that kind of the fact that our contributors were from all over the world, just fitting with the theme. And, and it was really a joy to work hmm. on these stories. Sounds fascinating. So when you say multilingual, do you mean that some of these stories have more than one language or within the storyline? So all of our stories come in English and Mandarin and French. And I think Mandarin would be especially interesting for um, your audience um, because it's talking Taiwan. Um, mm -hmm. And um, it, it's really a great tool for Asian American families who want to have easy access to their heritage language while being abroad. I know for me, I was motivated by that in the beginning because, mm -hmm. you know, we were we were living in France and it was hard to, to find, um, you know, quality stories in Mandarin um, for my daughter. And, um, you know, the age of three to seven is such a critical age to, to expose their ears to um, languages. That's really where good accents come from. This is why kids um, who, who are exposed to new languages at this age, even if they don't necessarily study it seriously, right after, eventually as adults, if they decide to pick up the language, they have a great accent, they sound confident, and they, you know, they can communicate easily with native speakers, whereas adults, they could, they could memorize the vocabulary and, and the grammar all they want. And, you know, they could read maybe really hard books, but they would never have that natural accent. This right, or the ear. Yeah, so it's all about incorporating quality audio into these stories. Mm -hmm. It's not to miss this critical stage. Mm -hmm. um, the stories were really written and also recorded with a focus on the beauty of the spoken word. Hmm. Interesting. Well, my question actually was um, if within the book, more than one language is included. So, for example, I'm imagining if the book, the narration or whatever starts in English, and then would it ever maybe change to Mandarin or and then have some French and like have all three languages in a book? Have you done anything like that? Or is it all English, all Mandarin or all French? It's all English, all Mandarin, all French. And this, oh. this, I feel strongly about this because, okay. um, yeah. because um, I am, I'm cringe when I hear kids here speak, for example, um, Chinglish <laughs> or Franglais, which is French and English <laughs> mixed together. So I'm like, well, we're, we're trying to protect a little bit the, you know, maybe, maybe this is the nerd in me, but like I, I wanted <laughs> to protect a little bit the purity of the language. So uh -huh. no, there, there's, I know there are other, other publishing houses out there. I, I, I think I've heard of one where they kind of, they kind of mix languages as the story progresses. But to me personally, it's a little bit gimmicky. So yeah, mm -hmm. for us, what we do is we, um, each story in, so when you open the Mad Editions app, you know, each each story is one app. And then when you open it up, you would have a book cover in French and one in English and one in um, Mandarin. And then the kid would tur turn the story page by page and each story would sort of come to life with a narration um, as they go. Um, so that that's how it that, that that's how it works. Oh, that's interesting. So if somebody buys uh, or has the Madeline Editions app, any book that they buy, they can listen to it in any three, any of the three languages? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. That's, um, a, that's really neat. 
Yes. So like narrator's voice actors actually play a big part of our projects mm -hmm. um, because there's so much focus on, you know, the beauty of the spoken word. Um, mm -hmm. For example, in, in, in the story, the, our latest story, Monster Dance, the one we made with Dr. Karen Tsai, um, the English narrator, voice actors play a big part um, in these stories because there's so much um, focus on the beauty of the spoken word. So in the latest story, um, Monster Dance, the story we made with Dr. Karen Tsai, and the English narration was done by the actor Dennis O'Hare, who's a Tony winner and in a lot of the shows that your audience will probably know, like um, The Good Wife, for example. Um, and the Mandarin um, edition was narrated by Taiwanese supermodel Lin Chilin. And voice actors are a big part of our project. Did you have anything to do with getting Lindsay Lin involved with the project? Yes. So um, we first, Dr. Karen Tai was, was the one who reached out to her nonprofit. Um, she was the one who made the initial contact. Um, and then we sort of tag team. She, she made initial um, contact and I sort of follow through with a personal pitch to Lin Jiling. And that's how it happened. Um, and, you know, we, I oversaw the recording in Taipei. Um, Oh, wow. In our studio, um, we do our Mandarin recordings in Taipei and mm -hmm. English in New York and um, French in Paris. And, and wow. um, <laughs> so um, it was so it was yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was um, she's so beautiful inside and out. And it was um, it was it was a very fun experience. Could you tell me a little bit about your upbringing? I found it very interesting how you're on this multilingual, multicultural path. Is, is there something about your upbringing that set you on a multicultural, multilingual path in life? Oh, yes, for sure. My sort of path, personal path, definitely has a lot to do with um, how I'm now running a multilingual publishing house. Um, I was born in Taiwan, um, in Kaohsiung. Um, and I moved to the States when I was, I think, 11. And, um, you know, I was in Hawaii. And then, and then from there, I moved to a lot of places. I, I, um, I was in New England for college. I was at Brown. And then I, I, I went to New York for grad school. Um, and I worked as an assistant um, at the New Yorker briefly at one point before going to Paris. And then, you know, from there, from then on, it was, it was really just a lot of every five years I moved. Um, wow. But, but Taiwan, I think a lot of people in my situation hard, find it hard to say where they consider their home. Mm -hmm. And, but so I think home is sort of wherever I am for the moment, but Taiwan has this, I, I definitely have this special relationship with Taiwan because my family still lives here. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the place that I consistently come back to every year mm -hmm. versus a lot of other places. It's just once it's behind me, I tend to just put it behind me. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, I think that and sort of my fascination and relationships with different languages, you know, um, going from Taiwan to the States and then um, kind of being put in an ESL class. Um, 
and and then you know learning French as an adult um and I'm at one point I was trying to learn Korean too because wow. we 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 lived in Korea for about four years and, and then my husband is also multilingual he grew up in Europe mostly but mm-hmm. he speaks English French Italian and um Korean all fluently um wow. And all with perfect accent. And wow. that sort of made us ask a lot of questions when our daughter was born. Is mm-hmm. What, you know, how does, like, this sort of relationship be- between speaker and lis- um, listener and someone who's listening, how a person is perceived in the way they speak a language mm-hmm. and how a person's identity is impacted by their relationship with that language, you know, for example, English is the language that I work with. So I feel very much an adult when I'm using English. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mandarin was my first language. Um, and um, whenever I speak Mandarin, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm back in my childhood and I, I immediately become more childish in a way. <laughs> and and it's, 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 it's the vocabulary, but it's also, you know, kind of, the relationship um, to the language and the, the spe- people you speak the language with and noticing like, you know, how for, for my, my husband, like he can fool a lot of people with his Italian, mm-hmm. even though his vocabulary is pretty weak because mm-hmm. he was exposed to Italian, you know, during this critical age of three to seven. Mm-hmm. And um, whereas my French, um, I could read all the classics and um, I, I, I obviously I lived in France and I could communicate no problem. But whenever I speak French, I'm immediately perceived as a foreigner mm-hmm. by French people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, so I'm really fascinated, it's fascinated by all these sort of relationships between people and language and homes and identity and how someone perceives someone else because of the way they're speaking language. Um, yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. Um, I don't know if you're interested, but I, one of my previous podcast guests, Michi Fu, uh, talked about this a lot because she's similar to me. Like she was um, born or grew up in the States and then recently decided to spend more time in Taiwan because her mother is widowed and decided to move there, live there full time. So she's gone back to Taiwan and she talked about how she's taking Mandarin classes and her, and improving her Taiwanese and how as her language improves and the expectations of her change, because as she has more vocabulary, more language acquisition, then people expect her to be able to fit into certain social norms. So it's very interesting how things are evolving for her as she learns the language. So it's really fascinating conversation. No, I, yeah, I find it all very fascinating. I mean, there's so many just, you know, small instances that, that if you think about it, it's really interesting. For example, when I was in Korea, uh, for some reason, everyone there thought, I was Korean. <laughs> so when I get into a taxi, I would try to speak, you know, I would say, I would, you know, I would say something in Korean. I would, I would tell them where I was going in Korean. And then the first reaction from the taxi, these, mm-hmm. these sort of adishi, these, you know, kind of um, middle-aged men taxi drivers mm-hmm. was just, you know, kind of, they were just so kind of indignant. They, they assumed that I was a Korean 
American who had recently come back and have, um, you know, <laughs> you know, who, who does not speak her mother tongue well. And <laughs> there's immediately so, so much judgment. Um, mm. But if I would just quickly say in Korean, oh, actually, I'm Taiwanese American. And then, you know, and then, then their attitude immediately changed. And then they would just praise me for how my <laughs> amazing my Korean was when just a moment ago, they thought it was terrible, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I wanted to ask you about um, actually starting Madeline Editions. Like, was it like, how? what was it like starting this publishing house? And what's been the biggest challenge? Um, for me, there's a clear separation between um, the parts I enjoy about Mad Editions and the parts that sort of um, intimidate me, maybe, um, mm-hmm. a bit. And and the creative production part has brought me so much joy. And I really felt really comfortable doing this. Um, you know, it combines a lot of my background, um, music and art and then um literature and and being able because you know being a writer is very solitary you're always Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on your own you're always you know facing Mm -hmm. the blank page and Mm -hmm. um you don't have co-workers and it can be um and if you're working on a very heavy subject like Mm -hmm. I was before in the the novel I was writing um Mm -hmm. then it could quickly get very a little too immersive and a little Mm -hmm depressive <laughs> um and this man editions allow me to work with you know designers um musicians illustrators um and and but still um you know doing the things that i'm good at so it, it was sort of the multidisciplinary um part of the project was really what i love um being able to still be in the realm of writing but um to be able to collaborate with a lot of um, other contributors so Mm -hmm. the creative production part was a Mm -hmm. real joy um Mm -hmm. and still is so that's the part i love and that's Mm -hmm. the part that keeps me going um the biggest challenge is probably um the part that comes with being a startup, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is you have to wear many hats at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's kind of running it uh, as a business, the financial marketing part and, you know, the fundraising part, those parts, I frankly do not enjoy. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I do it because you have to when, when it's a startup. So, um I think the biggest challenge was trying to just, you know, push myself out of my comfort zone and to, to do, do those other things that, um, you know, I might not, that I don't feel that might, that's natural, that naturally matches with my personality. Mm-hmm. Well, and hopefully as you, as you grow, you can have hand that over to other people and focus on the things that are really your forte. Mm-hmm. That's my goal. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing to work towards. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so your daughter, I take it, is multilingual then? She's multilingual. And, you know, she speaks the three languages that we make selfishly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, she is. And, um, and um, 
in our in our household we have many languages going on at the same time like she has her secret language we have our common <laughs> language and then she has her secret language with me and she has her secret language with her dad and then you know now that we're in taiwan my parents are sometimes trying to speak to her in taiwanese and she's just like wow what's going on there's so many languages <laughs> wow well, she's a, she's a testament or a proof to how you can be proficient in each language. Yeah, kids just pick up things so fast. Yeah. Um, and um, I understand that you've worked with Guy Gilchrist before. Could you, could you tell me a little bit about him and some of the projects you've worked with him? Um, this, actually, this was my first time working with Guy. Oh, okay, um, then but, I was misunderstood. But- um, but he's, we are, we're considering um, collaborating again. Uh, he actually came with me, came to me with another project the other day, but um, I can't talk about it yet because it's a little <laughs> bit um, still under us. But mm-hmm. um, he, yeah, Guy is, I mean, it was, it was such a joy to work, work with Guy and really an honor because, you know, he, as I mentioned earlier, he illustrated some of the most beloved cartoons that we grew up with, um, you know, our generation, yeah, like the Muppets, Ninja Turtle, Tom and Jerry's. And um, he, was, he was actually declared a national treasure by um, um, the White House um, and um, so, so it was. It was just amazing to work with him, and mm-hmm. he, he's he he is so productive. I have never worked with an illustrator who draws this fast. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just. It was just. It was very impressive to to watch, um, and um, so kind, and very much into um, doing good. Um, and um, so he, he was he was the inspiration to us all. Um, it sounds like you come across a lot of very interesting people, especially creative people um, in your work with Madeline Editions. What, what would you say has been the highlight of the, your work with Madeline Editions? Um, well, the highlight is, is, is the co- collaborations, of course. Um, are, are you looking for a specific contributor? Uh, no, you can you can answer it anyway. So it could be a highlight. Could either be if if it connected you with someone, interest interesting or influential, or if there was some particular project that stands out. Um, you can answer it how you want to answer it. Mm. Or you could answer both. <laughs> okay. Well, I think um, oh, it's so hard to pick, you know, we, because we, we've had many amazing and, you know, also unexpected contributors. An experience that was especially special to me um, was the piano recording we did for one of our first stories, um, and it's called The Little Baby Airplane. It was a very fun experience because we did original composition for the story so so some of our stories we use existing um, mm-hmm. recordings but in this mm-hmm. case we handed the story to a German composer mm-hmm. um, who then wrote music f- especially for the story from scratch and mm-hmm. I work closely with him um, on this I, I used to be a pianist also never oh. professionally but you know for many years mm-hmm. I played the piano so mm-hmm. um we we work on this together and then 
we and then it, it came time to do the recording and this was at the i mean now we have a studio we work with like i said in new york and, mm-hmm. and taipei and paris back then um this was the very beginning we didn't have a studio and we had no budget wow. <laughs> so what ended up happening was a, a duchess uh, a german duchess then heard of this and uh, of this project what we were trying to do and she invited us into the music room of her chateau because you know in a a chateau you have a music room and she had a music (laughs) room with a Steinway grand piano (laughs) so she invited us there for free and then you know we we call up people and then you know I have a producer friend in Germany who had you know, all the equipments, the microphones, et cetera, et cetera. And just for a period of 48 hours, we, we, we recorded um, the piano composition. And keeping on when you record something, usually um, it, with a pianist, you know, it's uh, who was, who, it, it's very, you don't just record it once. You have to yeah. get like good take or a take sure. you're happy with. You have to do it maybe fifty times, and so um, we had we had about, and and the composer really did much more than I expected. I thought you know he would come up with a theme song and then we would you know do variations and, but it was he he literally he came up with you know seven separate original um, wow pieces and there was actually so much to work with we ended up using just using you know excerpts for every page um in in 48 hours um from morning to night we recorded this in the in the music room of this beautiful chateau and then um (laughs) and all for free (laughs) wow um so you know that that was very special Oh, yeah, for sure. Can you name who the Duchess is, or is she prefers to be, remain anonymous? Um, <laughs> no, I don't. I think I better not. <laughs> wow. I can tell you it was ne- next to a lake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wonderful. In a small town next to a lake. That, but, that is um, a, yeah. yeah, that's a pretty unforgettable situation. Are there a lot of other multilingual publishing companies? I haven't really done research. I haven't heard of very many like this. I don't have kids myself, so I don't know. Um, I don't think there are. There are bilingual books out there, um, but it's it, not that many. And multilingual, um, I think, is, it, it's pretty rare. Um, yeah, and multilingual so the, and yeah. children's publishing, children's books also probably even more rare. Yeah. So the way it works in traditional publishing is that, um, you know, um, a publishing house in in the States, for example, would come up with the English edition and then they would sell the foreign rights to a different country. So mm. it's really very much based on the idea that there are borders mm. around each country and, you know, you mm. treat it region by region. Mm. Um, in some cases where the use is more educational, um, then you have bilingual stories. But then in there, they're treating more as educational material rather than, you know, um, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what we do is border that. That was sort of the reason why we started with digital, actually, because we wanted to 
not be restricted by this idea of, you know, foreign rights and, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, connecting one language to one country. So uh, digital means borderless, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we want it to make it make quality storytelling accessible to families around the world, um, keeping the cost down. Um, that was another advantage of digital. And and also, you know, the multisensory aspect with digital, you could, you could um, weave uh, um, the picture and the, the moving picture and the audio together easily. Um, so I, I think what we do is, is pretty unique. Um, mm-hmm. And we've heard from both monolingual and multilingual families. Um, and and it's, it's been great to hear their feedbacks and, and their experiences with these stories. I think for monolingual families, it's the parents like the fact that even though they speak only one language, they could easily expose their kids to other languages um, without feeling intimidated. And um, and it's not like a chore for the kids. It's not, you're mm-hmm. not asking them to go to a tutor. You're just asking them basically to do what they love to do, which is mm-hmm. listen to stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and for multilingual, um, I know the multilingual families, um, they appreciate the fact that even while living away from their country of origin, they could have easy access to their heritage language and share that with their children. Yeah, so would you say that most of your sales are digital versus uh, print? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 90, 99%. Oh, wonderful. Um, our That's a good business model. Are, uh, well, well, we would, it's mostly because um, print was so, sort of a surprise. Like we always wanted to um, eventually um, make print books because I, I personally love mm-hmm. um paper books um and we also came up with i thought a very obvious but also elegant solution mm-hmm. to incorporating the audio into mm-hmm. the printed books which is through um qr code <laughs> which is mm-hmm. you know not not anything new but um in in a project like this it just seems like such an obvious way to turn kind of every parent's cell phone into an audio player mm-hmm. um while still maintaining sort of the tactile experience of reading a printed book um so we were it was always our plan to do that um eventually but we were thinking you know 2022 and we were also thinking of um collaborate like partnering up with bigger publishers to do that um and monster dance like i said monster dance (laughs) sort of cut in line and and because there were so many special contributors like celebrities um attached to this project and and because a lot of the parents were saying hey you you should do a printed book and we we did and so that was an experiment so we ended up experimenting with the Mm -hmm. with the printed book earlier than mm-hmm. we expected. Um, so Monster Dance is really the only title that we have available in hardcover right now. Oh, um, I see. Interesting. I find it interesting the way that you're making um, these books accessible in digital form can actually expose kids to different languages because even if, let's say, they are listening to the book in English, but maybe they don't have any Mandarin or French speakers in their family, but then I'm sure the kid could just listen to the French and maybe because they've listened to the English version enough, they can kind of put together what they're listening, hearing in in the French version. That to me is a very interesting opportunity or exposure for them. 
Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I think a lot of parents get intimidated because they think, you know, their kids need to have a certain level of a language before they listen to a story in that in, in that language. But um, it, kids are capable of understanding way beyond their vocabulary with with the help of context, you know, um, through the tone of a voice actor or mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. help of moving pictures and, um, mm-hmm. the, you know, even the mood that music is conveying. Um, mm-hmm. They're perfectly capable of following along with the story, even if they don't understand any of the vocabulary. I mean, mm-hmm. to give you an example, when we tested our first story, um, a prototype in Paris with 50 French school children we show them that the french the english and the mandarin version and obviously french was the language they knew and english maybe you know like um half of them had some exposure and Mm -hmm. mandarin was like nobody had any exposure to mandarin but the the addition they liked the most and wanted to listen to again again was the mandarin (laughs) yeah they got such a kick out of it um they thought you know they thought it was it was funny the way it sounded it was interesting and they just they just that was the one they wanted to go back to and that really proved like some of our instincts going to this that at that age um namely you know the critical age of three to seven that all the all the scientists Mm -hmm. say is the Mm -hmm. it's the critical age for language acquisition at that age they really have a year for the musicality in languages that adults don't have and to them, a new language sounds like music. So mm-hmm. um, there's no barrier there. Um, mm-hmm. They're just, you know, you just, you really just need to provide the context and they have no problem following along, no problem um, being interested um, in a story, um, even if they have no prior exposure. Well, then I have a question for you, being someone that's proficient in all three of those languages, like objectively, when you heard that particular story being told in English, French, and Chinese, do you think there was something particularly amusing about the way the narrator did the Mandarin language version? No. <laughs> okay. But then I'm coming to this as an adult, right? Yeah. I, I don't think the Mandarin was more amusing than the others. I mean, I don't think I guess they there's were a more, novelty. Uh, yeah, it's the novelty. And also, it's really, you know, every language is, has its own musicality. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and I think the reason why kids are able to sort of detach themselves from the fact that it's it's a language and listen to it to the musicality more than sort of the individual words, like the, the, the rise and fall and mm-hmm. the rhythm of a sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, that's some a talent they have that adults don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you talk to a lot of writers, um, it's really, it's, it, it's, I mean, it's instinct proven by science. I guess that's how I would put it. I mean, um, if you talk to a lot of writers, they would tell you that when they're, they're editing their own work, um, they would read it out loud. Um, mm-hmm. to themselves mm-hmm. and this is because right away you hear where whether it sounds as good as it should um there it, you're sort of listening for the musicality in the language and you just you know it's hard to explain but, explain, but instinctively you know mm-hmm. whether the rhythm is off mm-hmm. or whether you should switch the things around or it needs just one more beat there or one more mm-hmm. word and 
Mm-hmm. And that just, that, that sort of comes, you know, that's an, yet another example of um, the musicality that languages have, each language has its mm-hmm. own musicality, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, how it's related to cultivating a year for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd like to actually talk about um, your work as a writer. You were a writer before becoming a children's book publisher. And um, so when did you start writing and what sorts of books have you written? So when did I start writing? So I I was like a lot of writers. I was a reader before I was a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've always loved reading was my thing growing up. Um, I just, you know, I was always the kid curled up in the corner <laughs> with a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I knew early on that I wanted to do something with literature, I, even if I didn't specifically um, decide I was going to be a writer myself. You know, I thought I wanted to do something with literature. Mm-hmm. So what I studied was always related to that. Um, you know, for undergraduate, I did comparative literature. Mm-hmm. And then um, for graduate school, I got an MFA in writing for Columbia. Mm-hmm. So um, I knew that, that I wanted to do something with that. And then um, I have a book, um, of a collection of short stories. In English, it's called rapture and in french it's called dextase um and actually now that i mention it um even my adult books are bilingual <laughs> so <laughs> i didn't i didn't think um i didn't think about that how maybe that that started earlier than i thought this whole multilingual thing but um yeah so it's a collection of stories that are that are um you know um you would see english on the left and French on the right. Um, mm-hmm. And um, that was like a collection of short stories mm-hmm. um, that was published by um, a French um, published co- publisher mm-hmm. called Edition Lanor. Um, but I think you can find it on Amazon um, in the States. Um, and um, then for many, many years, I was working on a novel um, and uh, the topic is actually it's it's related to Taiwan. It's um it's it's historical fiction. Well, I don't know if I would call it historical fiction. There's a historical component to it, um, and that was a very, you know, it took a, took on many years of my life, <laughs> and um, I'm about I would say eighty percent done with it. Um, but at one point I had to step away from it because it was just becoming so heavy. Um, uh, yes, that's the book that you, the topic you mentioned before. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, one of, one of the, one of the main characters, um, lived through the Urba incident. Yes, the incident. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, and, you know, so that, that involved a lot of mm-hmm. reading up on, you know, personal accounts of what happened mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. just, it was, it was very, very heavy. So, mm-hmm. um, and I just, you know, I, that, that book had, um, before I finished it, it was, it was, it was a finalist for, for the, for the James Jones um, first novel word. And then we had, you know, I had an Asian, but it was somehow I just couldn't, finish it like I I didn't know how to end it <laughs> so I had I rewrote and rewrote the ending many times oh, wow. but I just wasn't I was just wasn't happy with it I just knew something was still it proportionally it was a little right. off mm-hmm. um so I and then at one point I just said I really need this is becoming 
too overwhelming and mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. depressing, and mm-hmm. I needed to do something to sort of bring the joy back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, actually, that's when malediction happened. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I put malediction was was my coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I that that book is that novel is in in a drawer, and um, I'm. I think I've I've actually had enough distance from it now that I'm planning on picking it up again this year, later this year. Okay. <laughs> I'm still waiting for you <laughs> to finish it. Um, well, we have we I have to finish it before we start. We we um we um start the the publishers could um shop it, but um yeah um. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I'm I'm really curious about it now. Do you also write for children? So like, because I'm curious what you would have to say is the difference between writing for children and adults. And then that also gets into the question about like different ages of children, because I'm sure it varies a lot depending on what age you're writing for. So our stories are um, loosely based on three to eight, and then we have two subcategories. Um, half of our stories are three to six, and the mm-hmm. other one, the other age group is four to eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty. That's a pretty standard um, way of categorizing the age um, in publishing. Um, with each age group, there are different challenges. Um, I think it helped that, you know, a lot of me and, you know, for other writers, for editions at the time we were writing the story, our children just happened to be in the age group that we were writing for. Right. So um, you kind of have a sense of how much, how far do you have to go in terms of explaining what's mm-hmm. going on and how little do you have to say and mm-hmm. um, how do you pare it down so that, you know, you're not just overwhelming with words, but at the same time, you're not kind of like, you know, because we're trying to like showcase the, the beauty of the spoken word, we're not, we're not dumbing it down too much. Um, that was actually one of our frustrations with a lot of children's books is like a mm-hmm. lot of the language is dumbed down. Mm-hmm. And I think kids are actually capable of understanding far more um, mm-hmm. than the vocabulary they know. So um, it, it helped that we were all parents, and we knew what how far we could go and what we could get away with and, you know, how do we put things a certain way so that they can understand um, the context. Have you, do you have any other book projects other than the one that you're, uh, that you just mentioned that you're going to be going back to? Um, I'm just curious if you had any other novels or uh, books written. So for Mad Editions, we are now, our, our next, our next title is going to be an adaptation of The Little Prince. Oh. The Little Prince, um, as you know, it's, it's a French um, classic and people, people generally put it in a children's section in the bookstore. Um, but in fact, the original is, it's not really written for, for kids. It's more written for um I would say adults who are nostalgic about childhood <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because it's, you know, the language is hard and then it's very philosoph- philosophical. Mm-hmm. So most, most big fans of 
little prints are actually adults and not mm. kids. Um, and they've made kind of like board books and all kinds of things for kids based on this because it's, you know, everybody recognizes the title. I think it's the title the most translated in the history of mm. literature. Um, but if you look at it, a lot of these board books for kids, they just, they, they take, you know, the few illustrations they have in the book and they sort of just match it up um, a little arbitrarily with um, kind of catchy quotes um, from the, from the original book without a, a storyline um, connecting the pages. So it's, there's no, there's no plot and story um, driving the story, the, the, these children's versions. Mm. So we wanted to make our own adaptation for kids three to seven, um, where the language is simple enough, but at the same time, um, we sort of distill the essence of the story into into a storyline that they could follow that and um, enjoy. So that that's our um, upcoming title. Well, I was actually wondering about um, books that you've written. For, have you written any books, other books for adults, or are you planning to go back to writing for adults? And what kind of topics inspire you to write? Well, other than the novel I mentioned, um, I am currently also working on a series of essays about homes versus houses um, mm. and what makes a house home um, and how um, and, and and I'm envisioning as sort of a series of personal essays, each one based um, on a house and, and sort of, um, you know, painting a very vivid picture of the house, but at the same time, how that shaped um, my memories um, and identity. So that's one of the things I'm working on. Okay. Do you have a writing routine when you write? Yes. My writing routine starts when my daughter leaves the house. Looking <laughs> <laughs> like a true parent. I'm sure a lot of parents say that. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's, it, it was very hard when she was little because I just, sure. you know, it, writing is not something you can multitask. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and then, you know, in the beginning when she was younger, it was just, you know, three to three hours of school and then she's back and it's not, and to get, <laughs> really get into something, you, re, you need at least one hour to, be immersed in like another hour before you're actually writing and you know Mm -hmm. so um so it was it was um now that she's nine and she's she's in real school um my my routine starts when you know when when she leaves the house and you know I I work at the dining table because I love a huge table I I don't (laughs) like desks because to me they feel claustrophobic so you know usually I'm I'm just pushing all the breakfast dishes to one end of the table <laughs> and then clearing like a big part of, of the dining table and just there with my, with my laptop. Um, and, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm brainstorming and, and I want to slow things down, then I write um, pen paper in a notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm, you know, when I'm really in the middle of it, the, the real writing is it's on, it's on a laptop because it has to be, fast um and i have to catch those sentences before i lose them so um that's how i that's how i write 
that's my routine. What would you say is the difference between a career as a publisher or a writer? And do you think that there are different types of people who are better suited for, to each one of these? Oh, usually publishers and writers don't mix. They're completely different careers. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, because of this day and age and because of, um, you know, sort of a lot of things going digital in publishing and, and sort of, um, the startup culture, it's, it's becoming, and, you know, crowdfunding platforms, it's become more um, intertwined, but normally like a writing career and the publishing, being a publisher and being a writer are totally different um, careers. But I think, yeah, I think certain personalities are definitely more suited to one or the other. I think being a writer is, you know, it sounds very romantic to people who are not <laughs> writers, um, but it, it really isn't. It's, I guess it's very solitary. And it's also, you know, with any other careers, you sort of have um, milestones along the way, right? So you know you're on the right path. Like, you know, you, mm-hmm. you've made this position, then you made that position. Then, mm-hmm. um, but with writing, it's, it, it's, very, it's like swimming in the middle of the ocean. Um, you could be on your way to something or you could just be totally lost until you have no idea. And there are sort of no milestones along the way to, to kind of um, keep you afloat and keep you encouraged. And so it's also very, very hard. The reality is it's very, very hard to make a Mm -hmm. living as a writer. Mm -hmm. Most writers do something else Mm -hmm. um, or they have the support of a spouse or a, a, you know, um, I don't know, they inherited a lot of money. <laughs> um, but most it's just it's just the, the, the harsh reality is you, you know, you have to write to be a writer, but it's also very hard to just be a writer um, and make a living. So I think both and a lot of times, you know, as, as you get older, and you have family you kind of feel guilty that you know, your thing is taking up so much of your time but you're not necessarily contributing financially to the household as much as you would like so Mm -hmm. um so so i guess i feel like i'm discouraging a lot of (laughs) young writers out there but i think i think it's important to know it's important to know kind of the reality of it is that this is really how much you have to you want it how much you you know like you really have to really want it to do it because there it's you know yes there's always the possibility that you're going to be a bestseller you know two years down the line 20 years down the line like in the majority of the time nothing happens and um you you really can't do it for the glory um and um you you have to it's it's just you um, you're you're the one. You have to be the person who's believing in yourself. Um, yeah, I right. hope that wasn't too, too discouraging for all the young writers. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah, there's no guarantee because there you that is a reality, right? We need to make a living, and writing may or may not guarantee an income, and so it's a balance between like um, how much resolved you are that you there's something about you that you have to write the story or not right (laughs) because it has to be something that drives you other than money because 
the money. Yeah, I think you, you have to really um, accept that there is value beyond, um, you know, financial value. Um, mm -hmm. And also recognition is not necessarily tied to, it's not always tied. Like it, it's sometimes tied, but it's not, recognition is not always doesn't always come at a time when you need it or deserve it. Um, mm -hmm. It could, you know, it's, it's arbitrary in a way. So you really have to rec you ha really have to see value in what you do beyond for the conventional ways of measuring it. Well, thank you so much for sharing this. Is there anything else that you wanted to share about Madeline Editions, about being a writer or anything else that you wanted to talk about during this episode? Um. Well, I guess I should give a little shout out to Monster Dance. Um, and, you know, that the pandemic is still going on. We don't know when it's going to finish. And I think I think this book could be um, could be helpful to a lot of families out there. And it's also a great way to contribute um, to our healthcare workers. So um, if you are a parent with kids six and under or even seven under and or you have nephews and nieces or you have you know um got parent to a little kid i think this would this would be a great gift um for the kids and and for the healthcare workers who are working so hard for us so and and the you can get it from apple books or apple app uh, just look up monster dance um google play if you have um if you have um android or you can go to our website, um, madelineditions.com, or on Amazon, you could get um, the limited edition hardcover copy, which which still comes with the quality audio we're known for, and um, take part uh, um, in the monster dance. <laughs> mm -hmm. And did you say there's something different if you go through your app, like um, versus if you bought it from Apple Books, like? Do you have a Madeline Editions app in which you can select one or all three of the languages available? If you have, I would, I, yes, I would say the app version is, um, if you're interested in the multilingual part of it, the app is, is, is better than the um, Apple Books um, because on, in the app version, you get both. So if you go to the App Store um, mm -hmm. on your iPhone and you mm -hmm. look up Monster Dance, um, it's not one app for all the stories. Each app, uh, uh, each story is a separate app. So Monster Dance is its own app. Um, and um, you will be able to read it and listen to it in both English and Mandarin, which I think could be very interesting for um, Taiwanese-American families out there. So does that mean when you go to the app store, you have to buy the, Mad, uh, the Monster Dance English app and then the Monster Dance Chinese app? Nope, it's, it's or it's just both one, app one app, and then you can switch it's both in one app. Oh, and we we just we threw in the Mandarin. <laughs> oh, but Mandarin there's no French. Because, no, for this version, the French is not out yet. This is the oh. only because it's the newest title. Yeah. The French isn't out yet. Um, all our other stories have French. Um, this one so far English and um Mandarin. Right, and but and, the French and is coming. If you, buy, if, if you get the app, if other um, languages get produced in the future, it will also automatically oh. upgrade to, um, you can update it to in, in, include other languages. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. But right yeah. as of today, English okay. and Mandarin. Okay. No, I, I, because I didn't know that 
this is how it works. So I wanted to make that distinction for my listeners. If there are people who wanted to have the access to two of them, uh, to English and uh, Mandarin version. Great. So how can people learn more about you or Madeline Editions? Well, go to our, go to our website, um, madelineeditions.com. And Madeline is spelled like the French pastry. So it's M-A-D-E-L-E-I-N-E, editions with a S, dot com. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to be on the podcast. It was my pleasure. I've been speaking with Eva Liu about being a writer and the founder of Madeline Editions, a multilingual children's book publisher. To learn more about Madeline Editions or how to purchase Monster Dance, the children's book created to help children deal with and understand the challenges of COVID-19, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll share any links to items mentioned in this episode. Talking Taiwan publishes new episodes on a weekly basis, and our work is made possible by the generous donations of our supporters and listeners. Help us to grow and continue producing engaging content by supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Talking Taiwan. We are offering supporters invitations to a quarterly AMA or Ask Me Anything session with me, Felicia Lin, the host of Talking Taiwan. Advanced notification of future guests, a Talking Taiwan tote bag, and other mystery gifts. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, tell a friend about us, or help others to discover Talking Taiwan by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.